The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. When you're driving down the road and the car next to you goes racing by and you get irritated because you're frustrated at the rate of speed with which they went flying by you, so you blare your horn and so they put their hand out the window and they give you their favorite finger. So you pull up alongside of them the next light and you, st- you have a nice pleasant comment for them only for them to tell you that they're racing to the hospital to see their dying grandfather. Context changes everything, doesn't it? But you and I drive and live blind to the needs of the people around us. Now, I can tell you that story because it just happened to me two days ago. Immediately as they drove off, I thought, I need, to, I need to chase them down. This might be an opportunity for me to make this right. So I followed them to the hospital. But you and I live blind. Why? Probably because many of us are too busy, blinded by our own needs. We all carry unmet needs. Someone is not taking care of us. We have hurts and we have pain and we have a past that we drag around and we need someone else to offer us an encouraging word. We need someone else to care for us and love us and hug us. We need someone else to be generous to us, to lift us up. And as a result, because we're blinded by our own needs, we don't notice the needs of others. On the other hand, some of us are blinded by our own hurt. Hurts so that when we see someone else, we don't see their need, we see our prejudice. We're blinded by our own busyness, our distractions. We're blinded by our own life. Let me just say, I've seen uh, many people playing Pokemon Go, and as entertaining as it is to watch the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse happen in our immediate moment, one of the things that is acutely obvious is that anyone who's playing it is not present. They're, they're meaning they're not aware, you're, you're not alert, right? And that's why we see news stories of a kid walking right out into heavy traffic or someone, like there's a story of a guy is walking off cliffs. Why? Because they're not noticing people around them. They're not noticing the situation around them. And most of us are living our lives like we're playing Pokemon Go. And everyone else around us is invisible. So we live as though... We're living in a chicken coop. Let me explain what I mean. Um, When you are blinded to the needs of those around you, then you are simply reacting to whatever is going on. Somebody speeds by, you honk your horn. They flick you to bird, you pull up alongside of them, and you're prepared to have some colorful comments for them. 
So you just react, right? And so whatever the circumstance is, is what's going to dictate the spinning wheel in your life and whatever is going to come out. Your emotions are just reacting to the circumstances around you. And if you, if you follow me, right, most of us would agree that your emotional reactions are simply just an instinctive response to the moment. Whatever is happening, and so you lash out in anger, you, you burst out in laughter, you, you get deep and sorrowful, you get contemplative, you, you smile, your heart's filled with wonder, right? Like all based on what's immediately going on around you. And, and, and so we live like we're in a chicken coop. Let me explain. In the average farm where there's a chicken coop, here's how it works. There is an alpha bird, call that one the king rooster. And that one kind of dominates the, roost, the, the chicken coop, and it goes around, and it has the privilege of pecking every other chicken's head. And if you've ever seen this, you actually will notice there's a bald spot on a lot of chicken's head where the alpha bird will go around pecking the heads of the other birds. And then there's the, there's the next bird right below it, the beta bird. That's, that's kind of like second in command. It's kind of like the sidekick. In every movie where there's an alpha male, there's always like the sidekick. And, and the sidekick gets, is the one that gets pecked on the most by the alpha. But in turn, because it's bullied, it goes around bullying everyone else. And the beta bird's actually one of the worst ones in the coop because it gets picked on a lot by the alpha, but it goes around picking on a lot of others. And if you follow it down... The beta picks on everyone else, then those pick on someone else, all the way till you get to the omega chicken. This is the last one in line. It's being pecked on, but there's no one to peck. And so it takes the brunt of it, right? And we call this the pecking order. And we live our lives like we're in a chicken coop. One family is pecking on the other family, one kid in class, pecking on the other one. Sometimes we call this bullying. But as you get older, uh, this just becomes kind of normal practice in the workplace. This is just kind of way that things go in the teacher's lounge. Everyone posturing, everyone pecking, everyone striking first so that someone doesn't strike you. And then when you know the bully is coming, when you know someone else maybe dresses a little nicer, they have a little more financial resource, or they have a better degree than you, what you do is you avoid them because you know what's coming. And so you keep your distance so as to avoid being pecked on. And when we're used to living in a uh, chicken coop culture, what happens is we become blind to the needs, to the pecking spots of those around us, simply looking out for our own interests, looking out for our own needs, protecting ourselves and assuming that anything anyone does nice is simply an angle to get something from us. We're always looking over our shoulder, waiting for the next peck waiting for someone to take advantage or use or abuse us. And so this leaves us all bloodied, broken, hurting, cynical, and on edge, all looking out for ourselves, but no one looking out for others. And who are the omegas in our culture? Who's the omega in your home? Who's the omega in your workplace? Who's the one that gets pecked on but has no one to peck? And as a result, do you and I live blind to the needs of those around us? So I want to bring you back to an ancient story. 
Uh, it's set in, or it's told through the lens of the Bible, but let me set it up for you. It's, it's set in the context of a guy who has just become king. Now, his name is David. He becomes king. It's in ancient times. But here's a story of his rise to the kingdom. He was a young man who uh, has the privilege of gaining the, the affection and the attention of the king of the nation of Israel. However, unfortunately, through that process, the king sours against David and decides instead of caring for him that he's going to kill him. So one day, David's in the courtroom, and Saul picks up a spear to, to kill and destroy David. David eludes the spear and then begins to run for his life. David spends many years being hunted by the hateful King Saul. One, at one particular season, while David is hiding, fending to protect his life, Saul goes out to battle with his sons, and he's killed. As a result of that, David uh, is brought back into Israel, and David begins to ascend to the throne of the king. When he becomes king, it's pretty traditional, pretty typical for there to be kind of a pecking order uh, next step, and that's exactly what you see. So I'm going to bring you to the, an ancient passage. It's found in the, in the Bible in the, second, in the book of 2 Samuel, meaning this is a historical account of this ancient time, and, and bring, it tells us this. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, uh, it goes like this. The war between the house of Saul, meaning the families and those loyal to Saul, and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So this is exactly what you expect, right? You, you, what you expect is now that David is king, he begins to peck and peck and peck, and Saul's home, the family, the lineage, the, those who are loyal to Saul, are getting pecked down, and eventually they're working their way down the pecking order, and they're kind of getting lowered and lowered to the point where they're becoming the omega in the kingdom. But I want to jump ahead, because this is exactly what you expect, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it's going to go like this. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? So you all know what's coming next, right? David has uh, had war and he's conquered. He's, he's become the king. His family has warred against the family of Saul. And now David has kind of exhausted the battle. Said, all right, is there anyone left now? Right? And what you expect to come next is David saying, because I want to make sure that we kill everyone. I don't want anyone to be a threat to my kingdom. But let me keep reading because something shocking happens in this moment. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's best friend was Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king who tried to kill him. So at this point, even though, even though David has become king, even though he's established his kingdom, at, one, at some point he goes, you know what? I'm tired of this. Is there anyone in Saul's family that I can actually show kindness to? I'm tired of the pecking order. I got pecked on, I got beat on, and I don't want to just go tit for tat, hate for hate, blow for blow, revenge for revenge. Let's stop this. Now there was a servant of Saul's house named, a uh, whole named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and imagine when he came in, he's kind of coming in, shaking a little bit, oh, 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 I'm going to get killed. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? 
Yes, I'm your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Surprised, shocked, caught off guard, Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. And if you were to read between the lines, let me add a little bit of commentary to that. What that means is, yes, there's still one guy alive. He's in hiding. He's avoided you. He's eluded your armies. Uh, and he's crippled. He, in this context, right? So don't read too much into what I'm sharing with you. I'm putting it in the context of this ancient time. In that time, cripples would have been outcasts. They would, they would be the zeros of society. You had the heroes, and then you had the zeros, and the cripples were the zeros. They, they weren't even allowed into the, the, the a courtyard of the king because they looked, um, they, they were not pleasing to the eye. The king didn't want to see someone in crutches or in wheelchairs. So if you got injured, you weren't even allowed to come into the king. And so Ziba's saying, yeah, but I mean, you know, you can't go near him. I mean, he, you, you know, we shouldn't bring him here. He has no value to you. When Mephibosheth, saw, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What has struck me as I read this story was, how many of us feel like Mephibosheths? We've been beat down, we've been abused in life, life has done us wrong, uh, we, we've been taken advantage of, and, and we go through life waiting for someone to get us, just waiting for another person to take us out, to take advantage. We're, we read every email, skeptical, right? And then, we, and then someone wants to show us a little bit of kindness, and we immediately come in going, I don't deserve this, I don't want this, this is not gonna end well for me, right? And that's what Mephibosheth does. He doesn't need anyone to tell him that he's worthless, he doesn't need anyone to remind him that he's a cripple. He doesn't need anyone else to go over his past or to go through his resume and tell him that he doesn't measure up. But the story is not included because it ends with Mephibosheth groveling in front of King David. No, it, it's included because it's an illustration. It, it reveals some deep character in the life of David that we can then transport into the modern current moment and apply to our lives today. And this is what I want you to take away. Here's the big idea. Here's something that you can apply in your life when you're busy living in the chicken coop of our culture, when you're going through life, kind of looking over your shoulder and you're waiting for someone to peck on you, or when when you've ascended to a position, you've gained a little bit of power, you, you've moved from poverty to wealth, and now you have your opportunity. Are you using it to tear others down, or are you going to look at the example of David and say, now that I've arrived at whatever place in life I am, how am I going to use what I've been given? And this is the takeaway. Here's what I want every one of you to write down as you take notes today. This is what I want you to record. This is kind of the, the central challenge and the, and the theme of this passage that you and I can use in our lives. And it's simply this. Lift others up. Mephibosheth is a cripple. David says, is there anyone in the house of Saul related to Jonathan of whom I can show God's kindness. 
And what was the kindness he was going to offer? He was going to lift up a crippled man. And, and I think you and I immediately feel a little bit of tension in this. Having lived our lives in the chicken coop, this idea of looking out for, for noticing the needs of others, and then looking out for the needs of others is like this uh, challenging confrontation and tension it creates in our minds. It's like, yeah, I think that's right. That is how we're supposed to live, but I've lived my whole life in the chicken coop following the pecking order, and this feels weird. I'm not sure I know how to do this. And the challenge is, it's not only hard to do, it's impossible to do. Here's why it's impossible. The reason why there's a pecking order, the reason why we just spin in our emotions, we just react based on whatever situation is going on around us, is that there is something deep inside of us called sin. Sin is a term biblical authors use to describe that drive in us to be selfish, to have an instinct toward self-survival. Sin is what drives us away from God and toward our own best interest, what we think is best, what we want to do, what we desire. Sin has already driven a wedge between us and God. Sin wrecks our relationships. Sin ruins our thoughts and our emotions. Sin is what's bringing havoc into your home and your career and your finances. And worse, sin wrecks your entire life, and it climaxes not in physical death, but sin leads toward an eternal judgment, where the consequence for the sin in our life is that we are cut off from God forever, and we pay the price of eternal judgment. But God saw that you and I were in an impossible situation where it was impossible for us to choose selflessness over selfishness. It was impossible for us to get ourselves out of the mess we got ourselves into. And so God intervened. God intervened by becoming one of us to rescue us out of this mess. I want want to bring you fast forward to another book. It's actually a letter written by a a guy named Paul who started a church in Galatia and he wrote a letter to that church describing to them that they were caught in this trap. He said, I want to challenge you to begin to live differently. He said, here's what happens when sin is in control of your life. And so Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. I mean, you turn on the news, you see it all around you. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. Sounds like the chicken coop, doesn't it? But then he continues. He says, here's what happens when God gets involved. See, Jesus Christ came to earth to take the collective death sentence that we owed God, to take the consequence for our sin on himself, to absorb our suffering, the suffering we deserved. And so when Jesus died, he died once for all. His death paying off our death sentence, his suffering absorbing the suffering we deserve for our sin. So that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ by faith, their sins are forgiven and we are given new life through Jesus, not only his death, but the power and the wonder of his resurrection. Now, when you believe in Jesus by faith, you not only are forgiven and given new life, but you are given God's spirit. How? When you believe in Jesus, God's eternal invisible spirit comes and makes his home inside of our, not our physical heart, not our mind or our emotions, but inside of our eternal invisible spirit. And when God's spirit is alive in our spirit, his spirit begins to take over 
the control of that wild, reckless spinning. Where otherwise we were just spinning and emotions were coming out of us. Now, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, He begins to drive your desires. He begins to control your reactions and your responses so that now, instead of you just being left to your own crazy, reactive uh, emotions, now you can allow God's Spirit to take control of your mind, your emotions, and your words. So that he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And these are the two I want you to focus on. Kindness, goodness. Kindness and goodness, which looks like virtues that are so absent in the culture we live in. Appreciated this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. during a season when people were fighting tit for tat, blow for blow, hate for hate. And he said, the old law of an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. It seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. It creates bitterness in those who survive and brutality in those who destroy. The old adage, the old law, an eye for an eye, leaves everyone blind. And yet we are called as Jesus followers to allow God's spirit to to take control of this wild spinning of our emotions that we have little control over and begin to allow his spirit to drive us toward the fruit of the spirit. Meaning there's one fruit that comes out of the spirit of God in you. And that fruit has many virtues meaning many evidences. It proves itself in many ways. Two of the ways that it proves that you are fruitful from the Spirit of God is that kindness and goodness just start coming out of you. So let's make this really um, personal today. Can we do that? How, How do you do that? Well, to lift others up, first we need to just be pleasant. We need to just start being a little more pleasant. Uh, another way to say it would be to be, offer a little more civility. Can I just challenge you? I bet that if you were just a little more civil on Facebook, we could probably clean up some of the national crisis we're in. Just you. Don't, don't point fingers at anybody else. Don't look, don't tell, this is not against everybody. This message now only applies to Jesus followers because only Jesus followers have the spirit of God in them that can take control of their responses. So don't look at everyone else. They're just spinning. But if you join in their spinning when you have the spirit of God in you, you are now offending and insulting the grace of God. Be pleasant. Be civil. Treat people with respect and dignity. I don't care in what status or position or caste of society you find yourself in. Let me read to you the example of a king who is interacting with an enemy who is crippled and has no right to be 
in his throne room. David's response is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Here's David's response when Mephibosheth comes in shaking and, you know, he can't even, he has no legs, his legs don't function. He says, I, I'm your servant. And David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. But Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. And what I want, what I think would be cool is, let me put this in context again. Let me add a little bit more layer of the history of this story. What you don't know, I mean, I haven't read it to you, so I'm gonna tell you, is that when David was being chased by Ziba's grandfather, Saul, there were two moments when David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Saul doesn't even realize it, and David could take his life. David doesn't take his life, but after Saul kind of removes himself from that situation, David shouts out, hey, Saul, look, I could have killed you. And then he goes on and he says this, why are you even bothering with me, a dead dog? And now, all these years later, one of the grandsons of Saul comes into David's throne room saying, why are you paying attention to me? A dead dog, but completely different scenario, right? One where he's being hunted, and even then, David doesn't spin. David demonstrates kindness. In this situation, the man who is saying, I'm nothing but a dead dog, David reaches down and he lifts him up. He gives strength to crippled legs. How? Simply by being pleasant. Don't be afraid. I will show you kindness. He speaks words that give life, not death. Don't, don't write this off. Words are powerful. Words have changed societies and cultures. Words changed you. Pause for a moment right now and think about some of the most powerful words that have ever been spoken over your life. Both words of blessing and words of cursing. Some of you, your life is defined by some affirmation you received in life. Others of you, your entire life up to this point has been defined by the fact that someone spoke death and hate and hurt and maligned you. And that has literally been your crutch that you've used to justify living blinded. Words are powerful. For me personally, I had the privilege of someone speaking life over me. One of, one of my great mentors and dear friends, uh, one of our, our staff, Pastor Corey, his dad, who not only pastored Bethel right here in Hagerstown, but was the reason we were able to launch LifeHouse. We met when LifeHouse was having very little impact. Every Wednesday morning, we would meet for breakfast. And the one thing he would say to me every week, and we met for seven years straight, when I felt like a nobody, and I felt like a zero more than a hero, he would say to me, Patrick, I believe in you more than you believe in yourself right now. You stay the course because one day you're going to lead a great church that's going to have a great impact in this city and you're going to plant churches and he would just begin to speak a life over me. And do you know for all those years, just someone telling me they believed in me gave me the courage to begin to believe in myself and begin to believe that something significant is possible if I would just simply say yes to God. See, words are powerful. Would you, rather than sitting around wanting someone to, someone to speak that into your life, 
begin to speak it into someone else's life. Would you today commit to beginning to speak life? Use life-giving words. Be pleasant in the way you speak. It's possible to disagree with someone without being hateful. It's possible to have civil disagreement. It's possible to honor someone with dignity and respect, even if you have profound, profoundly different views. Honor them as people, as human beings. Build them up. Don't tear them down. God has given you his spirit so that you can lift others up by being pleasant. And then the story continues. Because we're not, not only should we be pleasant, we need to take the next step, which is to lift others up, we should be practical. See, because kindness gives way to goodness. Kindness means I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to be pleasant. Goodness means I'm going to be practical in lifting you up. I'm not just going to say you're really nice. I'm actually going to do something to be nice to you. What, is, what does David do? Well, after he says, I'm going to show kindness to you, he continues in verse 7, I will restore to you the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David does two really interesting things in this moment. He says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you back all of the land that your, that your grandfather Saul had. Now remember, his grandfather Saul was, was the king. He had a lot of land. Under normal circumstances, the new king would take all of the possessions of the old king because he killed everyone, and now he would become increasingly wealthy. David says, I'm going to give you everything that your grandfather had. That's practical. And you aren't even going to have to live on that land. You're going to live in my home, and every meal I eat, you're going to be at the table with me. Now, that would, under normal circumstances, never happen. But David said, you're going to eat my food. You're going to be served by my servants. I'm going to pay your bill. I'm going to give you back everything. Then I'm going to pay your bill so long as you live in my house. Your family's going to grow up in my house. Your, your wife and your kids are going to live in my home. Could you imagine? Take that and make that practical today. What would that look like for you to identify people that you otherwise refer to as an enemy? You not only begin to speak kindly to them, you not only begin to speak favorably about them on your social media feed, every time you interact with family members and your friends and you're talking about your enemies, you begin to speak kindly. And you offered civility and dignity and respect. But then you said, not only that, you're welcome in my home. You can eat at my, dinner, my dining room table. You can come hang out in, in, in my living room. I'm, I want you to play with my kids. As we as Jesus followers began to treat people with respect and dignity, not just by being kind, but by being good, we could lead a revolution. Let me give you an example. In 1818, Tomato, don't laugh. I know, you can't resist, right? His, this guy, the king of Hunai, his name was Tomato, which probably made him the brunt of a lot of pecking. But uh, he, he was a king in the South Seas Islands, and um, he, was, uh, he had a conversion to Christianity. He became a Jesus follower. But among the savage pagans in his island, that was considered uh, a threat. And so there, uh, there became a gr growing plot 
to murder King Tomato. This is actually a true story. You can look it up yourself. Um, he found out about the plot. And so he gathered together a band of soldiers to go after those who plotted against him. They surrounded the camp and captured every one of them, brought them back to his estate and set a banquet feast in front of them. Overwhelmed by the goodness of the king, these savage individuals who were gonna murder the king, not only were warmed in their hearts, but actually became converts to Christianity. Because that old law, an eye for an eye, leaves everyone blind. We're called as Jesus followers to, to lift others up by being pleasant and being practical. Getting involved, not finger pointing. Showing up at hospitals when someone treats you wrong. Bringing a meal when someone offends you. Lifting others up rather than tearing them down. It means getting involved in the messy details of their life. It means showing up and sharing your resources. It means getting into the messy dirtiness of others' brokenness and being willing to get dirty yourself. It means willing to take the offense on yourself so that someone else is guarded and protected. I firmly believe that Jesus' followers in our generation can be the brightest light of the love of God. In fact, we are the only light of the love of God in a culture that is profoundly dark, living in the chicken coop of our culture. And you are called to be different. But you can't do this on your own. It is utterly impossible. The only way that you can get out of the chicken coop mentality is if you are transformed by the spirit of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. So some of you now, right now, is your moment where you need to yield. You need to lay aside your hate and your hurt. You need to give up your agenda, your prejudice, your bitterness. Some of you need to begin to confess the wrong in your own heart. And allow God's spirit to enter your spirit as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's where you're at right now, this is your prayer moment. To allow God to transform your heart. Would you make that your confession? Jesus Christ, I believe in you. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have the responsibility and the privilege to allow God's spirit to begin to produce fruit that demonstrates itself through the evidence of kindness and goodness. In what way do you, begin, you need to begin to be pleasant? In what way do you need to begin to become practical in both kindness and goodness? I want you to pause right now. And would you allow God's spirit to speak to your spirit? And I'm praying that God's Holy Spirit will begin to lead you in a life transformation. Would you take a moment? Would you pray right now? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.